Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen. We've got a great episode for you today where we'll be doing our first of many deep dives about the investment banking division. And we touched on this a little last week when we did an overview of the different roles in the bank and who might be a good fit. Um, But actually, before we dive in, Jen, we've got to catch up here because I haven't talked to you in what, like 12 hours? I miss you overnight. (laughs) It's so sad and pathetic. I'm so codependent. Okay. But Guys, I like, first of all, I'm so glad you can't see me right now. Like my dream is to one day be able to have all of these podcasts recorded and be able to like have them on our YouTube channel, but you do not want to see us right now. I was showering. And of course this is Charlotte where you experience all four seasons in one day. So out of nowhere, it went from like bright, sunny skies to like, boom, thunder, lightning. And I was like, I'm going to get electrocuted. So I like leapt out of the shower. I'm soaking wet. I look like a drowned rat. And of course now behind me, it's sunny. And it looks like a beautiful day to like go for a it hike. Does. So I have no excuse. I look like a mess. Um, no. But that's what's going on with me. Uh, Kristen, <laughs> uh, you have much more exciting things going on with you. And I, I want you to talk about them. Lots to celebrate. Yeah. I know. Uh, it's, so this was sort of, this was a big week um, and it felt a little full circle. So we ended mm. up closing on our new house in Boston on my COVID baby's birthday, which uh, actually I should probably explain what the heck that even means. But, <laughs> so three years ago when COVID hit uh, and we, you know, we were in New York City, which was like the mm-hmm. beginning of where everyone was realizing, shoot, like this thing is everywhere. Uh, right. But I was 36 weeks pregnant and we were terrified mm-hmm. and we panicked and fled to Boston. Meanwhile, my parents, though, you would think, oh, we now have help. No, they were down in Florida, like snowboarding or whatever. So but mm-hmm. I had to find a new doctor. And it was literally two weeks before I gave birth. It was insane. I can't um, but now, imagine. Yeah. But she was born in Boston, actually. And I was so disappointed she doesn't have her New York birth certificate. But she's like a Boston baby. And literally three years later on her birthday, we closed on our house there. And so that's why I just felt very full circle. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Moving to Boston and Charlotte, hey, mm-hmm. she's got the Boston birth certificate, so she's going to she be does. the only, you know, legit Bostonian <laughs> in the family. Well, uh, her and me. Oh my gosh. So. Well, I mean, I feel like we're going to have to do an entire episode on the culture shock of transitioning from a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment with five people living in it to now like yeah. a 
yeah. properly sized home for the yes. large oh, yeah. family that you have. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And and even so it's funny because like we have 1200 square feet for five people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we got a email from our building saying that they want us to now bring our strollers into our apartment too. So we leave them in the hallway, which like we're technically not supposed to do, but like nobody in our floor cares. Like we have three other kids in this hallway. There's like a couple families with dogs. Like the dogs are always Mm -hmm. running the hallway. Like it's sort of just like people are like chill, but I guess they're showing this apartment in our, on our floor and the brokers were complaining. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, no, we're not bringing these strollers in to take up the no square footage we have. So my, 10 month old who's crawling can put her fingers all over the the, the wheels which are been on like the New York City sidewalks so you're it's, like, gonna disgusting. have to sit so. on a stack of strollers to record this podcast <laughs> yeah I know it's so true back to our uh back to the episode so we had some <laughs> feedback from last week uh my mom and my mother-in-law so hi Jojo hi mom if you're listening um and from some of my that, college friends as well by the way we've gotten mm, such great participation we're so grateful for you guys no, I know. But no, they they were like, it was a lot to take in. So we yeah. are going to try to break it down even further today. And we're going to back up and get into basics about what the investment banking division is, how it's structured. And we're going to try to walk you through like how a company would interact with a banking division using a, a deal. Um, mm-hmm. But we also asked you guys on Instagram to submit some questions you had. And we're going to be doing this more often. So if you didn't get a chance, like, don't worry, we're going to have plenty more. Um, but we're also going to be incorporating some of these questions in the episode this week and then next week as well. So Right, right, right. Um, and also, we are lining up some great interviews for you guys with people who can speak to other divisions within the bank, like research. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's a bunch of parts of the bank that we haven't even begun to touch on. Um, and <laughs> it's because we didn't work in them. So we're starting right. with investment banking and sales and trading just because that's where we worked and (laughs) we can speak to it most eloquently. Uh, But again, yeah, thanks guys to to everyone who's been submitting questions and and contributing. You know, we're we're starting a little community here and we're so small right now, uh, but we really (laughs) appreciate everyone who has found us and and joined along with us. We really, we're grateful for you guys. I know. Thank you guys so, so much. And I mean, the best part is, is today's the day that I get to kick back and I get to wear like my interviewer hat. So <laughs> Kristen, you are our resident investment banking division expert. Uh, so this is going to be my favorite episode to date. Uh, <laughs> I, I get to be lazy. Um, okay. So let's get started here. Uh, <clears throat> drum roll, please. Kristen, I know. can you explain to our listeners what the investment banking division of an investment bank is? Sure. So we touched on this in the last episode, but as a reminder, so the investment banking division, which everyone loves to use these acronyms. So people call it IBD, but it is the part of the bank that provides corporate advisory services, which like, what the heck does that mean? So (laughs) corporate advisory just means that the bankers are giving companies advice on what they Mm -hmm. should or maybe shouldn't do in different situations. Um, And look, so we're really big with analogies here. And because I literally just closed on a house this week, and Jen is (laughs) a real estate agent um, in her other life, uh, we're going to be using a lot of house and real estate examples, which you actually might have already seen if you've seen any of the Finance 101 videos I've put together, but also because we love our trashy TV and we are huge Selling Sunset fans. So I was was so opposed to watching Selling Sunset, and then you badgered (laughs) me about it literally nonstop long enough that I finally caved. And of course, like now I love it. 
No, I know. See, I do actually have decent recommendations every once in a while. <laughs> right. No, you do. And, and listen, real estate is such a good analogy for banking in this particular case. I, I love it. Okay. Well, perfect. So a banker does something similar to a real estate agent only for companies. So let's look at what happens if you want to buy a house. So we're going to make it hopefully a little bit more relatable to people who aren't like in the investment banking world. But what do you do, right? So you walk around the neighborhood, you take a look, maybe you open up a Zillow app and see what different houses on the block were sold for. Or maybe you find a house that you like, there's an open house and it's listed for sale. But then when you get serious, you're probably going to call a real estate agent. Um, Absolutely. And so you're going to call someone to represent you as the buyer. And you're going to call someone who does this day in and day out and is an expert in advising buyers on how to get homes. Yes, exactly. So when you find the house and you want to put an offer in, your agent is going to look at the houses that have sold recently in the area and they're going to try to understand like what do they think the house is worth based on the comps. But what that just means like the houses that are similar, right, to that have sold recently and they'll come up with a strategy, you know, do they think the house is worth more or less than what it's listed for, right? They're going to be the ones to help you understand how to get that house. Right. They're going to also help you understand you know, can you afford the house and, and how are you going to pay for it? Are you going to get a loan? Are you going to pay for it with cash? Right. I, mm-hmm. uh, trust me, we're not just talking about houses here. We're trying to like build. We're setting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to like lead into this house, into the, into this company example. But look, I mean, guys, this is exactly what an investment banker does, except obviously not for houses, but for companies. So if a banker is hired by a company to advise them on buying a company, uh, the banker will start by doing evaluation analysis. And like with the real estate example, they'll also use comps. Um, they'll also use something called a discounted cash flow analysis. Analysis or a DCF. And if you want like a really quick three minute explainer on that, um, you can check out some of our Instagram videos. And actually, if you want to be really adventurous, you could check out our TikTok videos. Oh, Although God. actually, you know no. what? No, maybe don't do that. There might be <laughs> no, some dancing please. there. If you Especially know us, if you know us, <laughs> if you know us, do not check out anything on TikTok. But let's let's walk through an example then of what this actually looks like when one company wants to buy another. A, so yeah. our listeners can understand like exactly what goes down. Yeah. So let's pretend we have a big company like Amazon. So Amazon wants to buy another company. And so they call up the bank that they have hired to be their, it's called the buy side advisor. And they say, hey, we're interested in doing this acquisition, right? So in other words, hey, we're just interested in buying another company. Wait, wait, sorry, Kristen, mm -hmm. back up. So Mm -hmm. we actually had a question asking why would a company acquire another company in the first place? I mean, again, we all know why people buy houses. They need a place to list. But why is one company buying another company? Yeah, that's a really great question. So take a step back. Uh, There are two primary types of buyers. There are strategic buyers and financial buyers. So strategic buyers are companies that make acquisitions because it is part of their overall business strategy, and it allows them to grow into areas more easily than if they were to try to do it themselves organically. So Mm -hmm. like, let's take when Amazon bought Whole Foods. They Mm -hmm. did it because it was easier for them to expand into the grocery business and get like these brick and mortar stores in Whole Foods than to try to enter that that space and start themselves from scratch. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me as someone who uses both Amazon and Whole Foods, like every <laughs> single day of my life, like you could okay. get, you know, before you could get like pencils from Amazon, but you couldn't get like asparagus, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Um, but so look, 
Amazon, it was the same actually when they acquired One Medical. So they wanted to expand into the healthcare market. And so in that case, they are buying, you know, One Medical. It gave them access to One Medical's brick and mortar medical offices and a variety of markets and hundreds of thousands of members. Um, so it allows them to grow and, and establish themselves in these new businesses without building it from scratch. Although they also could they could buy a company that's in the industry that they're in um, and try to just sort of like take market share in their existing space. But anyway, so that, that's sort of the reason why you might do an acquisition. Got it. And well, you said there were two types of buyers. What was the other type of buyer? Yeah. So the second type of buyer is a financial buyer, but let's actually put a pin in that. I promise we'll come back to it later. So for now, we're just going to focus on these strategic buyers like Amazon, um, because I think that they're somewhat more straightforward to understand. Um, And and like the stories, we understand it, right? We've probably seen this in the news and we also like experienced it. So Amazon has identified that they're interested in buying Whole Foods. So they call up their banker and they say, hey, we need advice on how much this company is worth and whether we can afford it. And so just like in real estate, in an acquisition, there are two sides, right? You have the buyer and the seller. Mm -hmm. And so when Amazon bought Whole Foods, so it's interesting, right? So Evercore, which is an elite boutique investment bank, which you may or may not have heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so they were the sell side advisor, meaning they were advising Whole Foods, the company that was selling themselves. And and, and again, it's like similar to a listing agent where, you know, you're selling your house, like you hire an agent to help you. Whereas Goldman, um, Goldman Sachs was advising Amazon. So they were the buy side advisor. And in these corporate transactions, and it's just like that house purchase because one agent represents the buyer and the second agent represents the seller. Got it. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So now let's pretend you, as the buy-side banker, are helping Amazon evaluate this decision. So you're going to build a model right in Excel uh, to determine what is the combination of these two companies, right? So what do their financials look like together? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be making a lot of, eh, we'll call them well-educated guesses, right? So assumptions based on available data for essentially, they'll look at what other companies that have done similar acquisitions in the past, how ah. things have gone through. Got it. Uh, those assumptions, by the way, will later be revised with input from the experts. So consultants like McKinsey or tax experts like Deloitte or the accountants, right? Is is that model, is this the comps analysis and the discounted cash flow analysis that you talked about earlier? So they they would do those analyses too. Um, Mm -hmm. That will help the buyer understand what Whole Foods is worth itself. Mm -hmm. What I'm actually talking about now is called a affordability analysis because it's going to help them understand what the buyer can afford to pay and what the combination of of the two companies looks like together. Technically, it's actually called often an accretion dilution analysis. Like There's different terms for this, but it's just sort of looking at is the buyer better or worse off after having done the deal? And what is the optimal consideration that yields the best results? Okay, I think I understand that better. So wait, sorry, can you back up and explain though, please? What is consideration in this context? I don't think many yeah. of our listeners will have heard that. In this <laughs> yeah, before. of course. So consideration just means if Amazon is offering Whole Foods $100 per share, what do the Whole Foods shareholders actually get? Is it cash? Is it in exchange for my previously $100 Whole Food share? 
am I now going to get a share of Amazon stock or probably more likely a fraction of a share? Or is it a combination? That is the consideration. What is it that the Whole Foods shareholders, like what are they getting? And much of what the banker's analysis is doing is determining what those terms should look like to be as favorable as possible for Amazon. Right, right, right. And I'm, I mean, I assume that just like with buying or selling a house, right, that there's negotiations involved. I don't yeah. imagine that everyone like just high fives and walks away. No. Right? Yeah. Uh, can you walk us through that process a little bit? Yeah. I mean, look, like there's obviously so much to talk about here. Um, And that's actually part of where like, you know, in the investment banking division, there's both the soft skills and the technical skills, right? So those work together. And it is a little bit of an art and a science at the same time. So once you've run your analysis, uh, there are a bunch of other factors that have to be taken into account. So for example, right, like does Whole Foods even want to be bought? right? Did they proactively put themselves up for sale? Or are we launching an unsolicited bid? Or do they actively not want to sell? And we are launching a hostile bid. It would be like if someone's knocking on your door, badgering you to sell your house when you have just absolutely no interest. I guess the analogy breaks down a little bit because with companies, deals can go through uh, where the seller doesn't necessarily want to sell, but that's a mm-hmm. whole other situation. Mm-hmm. The buyer can make an offer, but the seller might not accept it. Sure, There may be multiple rounds of negotiations that, by the way, end up going nowhere. And the bankers have then done all this work for very little end results. Right. Got it. Okay. But so after all these negotiations like do come to fruition, what happens now? Are, are we yeah. just done? Yeah. Well, uh, no, not, not yet. So uh, let's say everyone is on the same page with the price. So in this case, mm-hmm. the price that Amazon and you know Whole Foods agreed upon, um, or I know it closed at like 13.7 billion, but they now have to make sure that Amazon knows how it's going to pay for the thing. This is called the financing, right? And, and what the heck does that mean? So back to the house. If you want to buy a $5 million house, you don't actually have to come up with $5 million in cash. Uh, are you sure about that these days? <laughs> I mean, fair. Uh, but usually what happens is like you're only going to have to come up with the down payment. So in the house example, it's 10 to 20% of the purchase price. And so I just like to use tangible numbers. So we're going to assume like a $5 million purchase price. So the down payment would be a million dollars. The bank is actually going to lend you the rest. So the bank would lend you $4 million. And in return for lending that money, you then have to pay interest over the life of the loan. And you have to pay them that $4 million back down the line at some point in the future. That $4 million is called principal. But look, this is just an example of debt. And actually, we will have a video coming out on (laughs) debt. Jen is working on that right now. Um, But uh, Now, because you put in a million dollars of cash as your down payment, which is also called the equity in your home, this is maybe counterintuitive, you actually own the house and you are now the sole owner, right? The decision maker. That's what equity is. It is the ownership. It is the control. Um, It's also on the financial side. You have like much more upside and downside, but that's a whole other thing. But look, you as the the new homeowner have the ability to decide when and if you want to sell the house down the line. So in other words, the bank, the lender, uh, they can't weigh in. uh, Hang on, unless you, yeah. somehow miss your payments on the debt, right? The bank can foreclose yes. on your house. They can take over. Yes. I mean, if you can't cover the principal of the mortgage from the proceeds of the sale when you go to sell it, <laughs> the bank needs to agree to a short sale. I mean, again, oh, let's yes. not let's not write out the debt Sorry. holders altogether yeah, in the process. <laughs> true, true, true. Jen, I know you are a fixed income girl, but a lender must get their scheduled interest in principal payments, right? That goes for all loans or else bad things happen. So we will put a pin in that until the next episode when we get into more terminology 
strategy around the debt. We're I'm just sorry. trying to start yeah. very sort you, of basic You can here. take the girl out of interest rate sales, but you can't take the interest rate sales out of the girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. So when Amazon saw that they ha- needed to come up with $13.7 billion in cash to, to buy Whole Foods, they had a decision. A, they could give Whole Foods shares of Amazon stock. So issue new shares of equity. In other words, give Whole Foods shareholders ownership in Amazon. Or B, they could give Whole Foods cash, which usually companies, when they do this, they will borrow money in the form of debt, just like in our house example. And they chose option B. So they borrowed $13.7 billion in debt. Um, Okay, so devil's advocate, though. Amazon has tons of cash lying around. Couldn't they just use that cash to pay for it? I mean, totally. But there's two things here. So A, you could borrow at crazy low interest rates at the time, which Jen, I know you're excited to speak to interest rates in the future. Um, (laughs) But also a lot of these big corporations have a lot of that cash overseas. Ah. And so if they tried to use it in a deal, they'd have to pay taxes on it to bring it back to the US. And so- you know, that's one of the reasons why, like, they might decide, hey, we're going to borrow uh, mm-hmm. borrow money instead. Yeah. But OK, so back to the Amazon deal. So the investment bankers were not only advising Amazon on how much to offer and what Whole Foods is worth. They were also helping Amazon run the numbers and um, see, like, should they issue equity? Should they borrow debt? They're helping them actually raise the money to do this whole thing, um, because at the end of the day, you know, Amazon's bankers give them the advice and they also help them to, to borrow the money, too. Okay, yeah. And so to clarify this a little further, right? Amazon didn't just turn to some random rich uncle and say like, hey, can you loan me $13.7 billion, right? Yeah. You know, the bank helps them borrow this money by accessing the capital markets. And the capital markets are really just the worldwide system of investors who are willing to purchase debt in exchange for cash. And, you know, we're going to have a lot more on this to come down the line. Um, But Kristen, you, you, you touched on this just now, not only why Amazon didn't just pay cash, but also the decision between issuing debt versus equity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we actually had a question on Instagram from one of our beloved followers and our ride or die supporter, Michelle Yoon. Um, She asked us, why would a company want to issue debt versus equity? So you've explained Mm -hmm. what decision they made. And I know we could do an entire episode on this subject, but Can we just touch a little on the decision tree? Like what factors actually influence the decision besides just like Mm -hmm. our interest rates low? Oh, yeah. No, this is a really great question. Um, And thank you, Michelle, for asking. (laughs) We we love you. Uh, There's many factors that go into it. But understanding the impact of issuing debt versus issuing equity and how it affects the acquirers, it's called the pro forma earnings, like that's just a fancy way of saying, what are the post-deal earnings? That is like one of the key questions that the investment banker is hired to answer. And why is that? Um, what happens to a company's earnings mm-hmm. is, is a proxy for what in theory should happen to its share price. And so Amazon, they want to buy Whole Foods and have the result be that their earnings and therefore their stock price goes up. However, issuing debt versus issuing equity are going to have different effects on those earnings. And so when the M&A banker like sits down and builds a model and crunches the number, they're trying to understand which looks better. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Um, and so what is going to make one look better than the other? Well, some of the things that will factor in are what is the cost of debt? So interest rates were really low for a while. What is it, like what is the credit of the company that's borrowing? But so what is the mm-hmm. actual rate? Also, though, like how valuable is the company's equity in the market today? Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah, because if the market is placing like this huge premium on the buying company's equity, now they have what's called this acquisition currency that's like super valuable. And um, there's actually, again, this concept in M&A called relative PEs. That's a whole other topic that we'll get to in a much later <laughs> yeah, date. Let's, but let's keep it yeah, as simple as possible sorry. for those of us who are uninitiated in those terms and think like PE yes. ratios, aka yeah. me. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I know, no, I know. But to be clear, so that's not the only thing that they care about. There's also the second question of what happens to their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So when the company raises debt, can they actually support the borrowing cost? Mm -hmm. Is the lender comfortable that Amazon has a good chance of repaying that debt? Ah, um, yes. Back to concepts I understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it it does bring us back actually a little bit to real estate too. So, you know, because, yeah, because I just went through this whole process getting a mortgage. Right. There is a limit on how much a bank would lend us mm -hmm. because they want to make sure that they're going to get their money back. Of course. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. So, we understand the question of debt, hopefully. The question of equity boils down then to ownership. Mm -hmm. So when you issue equity, you dilute your existing shareholders, meaning like you're reducing how much ownership and how much control they have. And so the question becomes like, does Amazon want to be giving away any of that ownership? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because from what we've seen, how they've done their acquisitions recently, their equity is valued at a crazy high amount, uh -huh. um, but they're still not choosing to issue equity, both with One Medical and then Whole Foods. So like, it doesn't seem like they want to be giving away ownership Got in it. those deals. So. Um, but no, this is a topic that we could just spend hours on. And I think it's really hard to internalize without visuals and calculations and formulas. So this is really scratching the surface. I promise we'll we'll dive into this more down the line. Um, and in our next episode, too, we're going to explain what happens after a company has chosen to issue debt, just like Amazon did. Like we're actually yeah. going to walk through that process. So don't you know think that this just goes out into the ether. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Okay, so we've established that Amazon has decided to fund the acquisition of Whole Foods by raising debt. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody has agreed on a price, the deal can go forward, and the bank gets paid its fee for advising the companies at the closing. In ah, addition to- At long last. <laughs> I know. In, in addition to, by the way, like helping them raise the equity or the debt capital, they will right, also right, get paid right. for that. Um, but we just spent a lot of time talking about one specific scenario. So in this case, it was an acquisition. Mm -hmm. That's really only uh, the type of deal that you'd work on if you were in the mergers or acquisitions group. So that's referred to typically as M&A, again, mm -hmm. back with those acronyms. Although full disclosure, so not all banks have separate M&A groups. And then even some banks that do, there are industry groups where people will do their own internal M&A. So the divvying up of like who gets what deal and what situation, it can vary. Got it, got but it. Broadly speaking, within investment banking, like within the investment banking division, there are two types of groups. So there are industry groups, which we will get to in just a few minutes, and then product groups, where you specialize in like certain types of deals. Mm -hmm. So product groups include M&A, so working on deals like we just went through, like mm -hmm. Amazon buying Whole Foods, but also the financial sponsors group. Um, that's another big one as well. What are financial sponsors? So financial sponsors are just another term for private equity. And private yeah. equity firms are not like regular corporations like Amazon who want to buy a company like Whole Foods because it solves a missing piece of their plan for world domination or you know it's a long-term investment that they think is a good investment. Mm -hmm. Private equity firms are also referred to as financial buyers as opposed to strategic, like we uh -huh. mentioned up at the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
And they're buyers who want to buy companies because their goal is to get a return on their investment. In other words, they want to buy a company, hold it for some time period, and then sell it for a higher price than they bought it for. Ah, yes. The uh, the one financial concept to rule them all, right? Buy low, sell high. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so these private equity firms are targeting putting in, say, like $100 of cash and then getting $300 out five years later. Uh, and I actually chose that specific number because it equates to a 25% IRR, which is what they are targeting. But we're not going to get into that now. So just understand they're trying to get more money out than what they initially put in. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's take it down a notch <laughs> I know. before we get to IRR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how are they actually going to do that, right? Like how are they going to take money and grow it from 100 to 300? So there's two parts of this. Number one, they need to be able to improve the business, and that will help them grow the value of the entire firm. And so back to my house example, Jen, did you ever watch Flipper Flop? Yes. And, and now I know where you're going with this. Um, but Flipper Flop, that, that's the one with that guy, Tarek, right, who married Heather from Selling Sunset. I think, they, I think they just had a baby. Yeah, I think they did. But no, so on the show, him and his ex-wife would buy houses that were fixer-uppers. And, you know, maybe it was owned by a hoarder or the foundation was cracking. So these houses, they could get them for relatively cheap, Mm -hmm. renovate them. And then Christina, who was the ex-wife, would come in as the interior decorator, make it look pretty, right? And they'd be able to sell it for a lot more than what they bought it for. And that's they'd make a profit. Yeah. Uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And uh, I'm talking about the house here, not terror. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so with financial buyers, meaning private equity firms, they, they do something very similar with companies. So they mm-hmm. buy companies with the goal of growing them. And they do that by partially cutting costs. And guys, like if you're wondering, why everyone thinks of bankers as villains. The cost-cutting thing that a private equity firm does at a company it acquires, like that's not doing us any favors. Like that's yeah, no. one of the big contributors. Yeah, no. I mean, I feel like I'm actually in a unique position to speak on both sides of this. Right. Not only did I work in the financial sponsors group at a bank, I then went to work for a company that was bought by a private equity firm and might have had my pay cut. So I definitely <laughs> can testify to the fact that it's not all rainbows and sunshines here. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, eventually, right, the PE firm exits their investment via a sale of the company, like in Flipper Flop, right? So you sell your business or IPO it, which we'll get to later. No acronyms um, before we define them. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I no, know. You're fine. You're fine. We'll, we'll put a pin in IPO and talk about mm-hmm. it later. But they're, they're basically just trying to sell their equity. They're trying to sell out. Um, the second thing that they do is they add leverage, which mm-hmm. is a fancy word for debt. And when they add leverage in this way, it's called the leverage buyout or a LBO. And this is actually a deal that every person who or I should say every teacher who's explaining a LBO, like they use the health example for, because when a private equity firm buys a company, uh, they're doing what you would do if you buy a house and get a mortgage. They're putting in 20% of the purchase price in cash. That's their equity. And they borrow the rest. Mm -hmm. So Again, any of us who get mortgages, like when we buy a house, we're doing teeny tiny little LBOs. Yeah, dude, people use leverage all the time in their lives and they don't even know it. I know. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I get why financial buyers buy companies and how they make money in like a big picture sense. But what does the banker in the financial sponsors group do to help them? Right. This is supposed to be titled the investment banking division. We're like, how to teach our private equity. What the clients are doing before you can explain like what you're doing to help them. Exactly. Yeah. So at the more junior level, you're going to be doing a lot of these leverage buyout models. And so you're going to be building a ton of expertise with modeling. And what you are modeling is going to guide the private equity firm in how much debt they can raise and at what price, making sure that if the private equity firm 
piles all this debt on the business, mm-hmm. they actually can support those cash flows. Um, mm-hmm. So they'll also calculate their returns on their investment when they finally go to sell. Got it. So that flip or flop thing. Exactly. At the senior banker level, they are maintaining the relationships with the senior people at the private equity firm. These private equity firms, they do a ton of transactions and a ton of different types of deals. Mm -hmm. And so the senior bankers want to be the person that the private equity firm reaches out to in like all of the different circumstances. So if the private equity firm wants to do a leverage buyout or when they want to sell the business, or if they're going to ultimately take the equity in that company public and do mm-hmm. that IPO, you want to be the one that gets the call. And so as the senior banker, you're going to be spending way less time building models in Excel. Um, and the majority of your time is just like nurturing those relationships. Yes, yeah, got it. I mean, it's just like any sales role, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So so Kristen, what about other groups other yeah. than product groups? Yes. Okay. So the other types of groups are called the industry groups. Mm -hmm. And in other words, the bankers here cover the clients in specific industries. So some of the examples of those industry groups include transportation, tech, consumer retail, power and utilities, financial institutions. And the senior bankers here are in constant dialogue and they maintain the relationships with the CEOs and the CFOs of those companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So they will pitch new business or advise them on things like the capital raising, again, in the debt or equity market. Markets, like they get in front of these senior executives to pitch mm-hmm. ideas to, to maintain the relationship with that company. And again, it's like a real estate agent who maintains relationships with the clients because when the client wants to sell the house down the line, like they get a call. I actually, I recently got a, a, a message from the person who sold us the apartment in New York City being like, what are you guys doing with your house? And we were like, oh, I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, it totally makes sense. Poor real estate agent. That guy's been, you know, putting you on his email list for the past like 10 years and you're totally just housing him. Um, Okay. So you've talked about a couple of the different groups within banking. Can you speak to why someone might choose one group over another? Uh, Yeah, this is a really, really great question. So I... (laughs) In general, it boils down to a few things. Um, I guess first, how much does the individual care about exit opportunities? So if mm-hmm. you have someone who like really, really, really wants to work in private equity or PE. Actually, um, actually, hang mm-hmm. on. Sorry. Um, Kristen, we actually got that as a question on Instagram from Aaron Smith, specifically oh. like what should someone focus on or maximize in a position in banking to prepare for a transition into private equity? Oh, awesome. Um, I guess the like first thing is people should be aware that recruiting into private equity starts very, very early. So if you're an analyst, um, be aware like you need to be preparing to interview for this shortly after you hit the desk. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, even before. But uh-huh. private equity firms are going to want to see that the analysts have technical experience. So making sure you are very comfortable with the modeling is important. And that is actually why a group like financial sponsors or leverage finance, which I know we haven't really spoken about, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, and M&A are great. But really, you can get or you should get modeling experience in any industry group. Although actually this reminds me, my former roommate, Jamie, somehow made it through two years in the transportation group within investment banking without any modeling. I don't know like what she was doing. Like it was mostly in PowerPoint, but how um, is that even possible? Is that your roommate when you were living in Times Square? Like how did we how did we even survive living in Times Square? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I I avoid Times Square now like the plague. But um no, I I legitimately have no idea. But that is definitely not the norm. But look, so during the interview at the private equity firm, they're going to help you demonstrate your technical skills. And sometimes they will actually ask you to build a leverage bio model, maybe even from scratch. And so again, that's where, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of know because you're going in, but yeah, they'll, they'll be like, here is a, I mean, and it can vary. Sometimes it's a blank Excel. Sometimes like it's a, it's an actual model with some, again, it varies, but you got to be able to build the models. Um, And so that's why being in financial sponsors can help because you are building LBO models like all day, every day. Although again, Mm -hmm. you, you can do that even if you're not working in that group. The other reason, though, it can give you, I guess, a bit of a leg up is that your senior bankers, they have strong relationships with the senior people at those private equity firms. Right. And so they can kind of vouch for you, which is 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 helpful from a networking and connection standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So what if, I know this is shocking because I feel like we've talked about private equity for 20 minutes here, but like, what if someone Sorry. has no interest in private equity? Yep. Yeah, this is a great question because tons of people don't. Um, And that brings me to my second point is you might find yourself interested in another group because you really like or love one industry over another. And you might want to become an expert in that industry and work in that industry down the line. Mm -hmm. And so, but by the way, you still probably will work on mergers and LBOs depending. Um, But if you love consumer retail or you love tech and you find those industries fascinating, then going into one of those groups might be a good fit. I think the third thing that you need to make sure you like the people and the culture of the group. Oh, and so I just like that's the most important thing. Yeah, I, I I think probably too. But just like different banks have their own culture, mm-hmm. groups do as well. And I just I can't overstate the importance enough of the people. You will be spending day in and day out with these people, you know, more hours a day than you spend with your boyfriend or your wife or your fiance, right? Yeah. It is so critical. And having a good mentor and a boss who can yes. look out for you mm-hmm. is so critically important. Uh, but then I think the final thing, so the fourth reason someone might choose something is you go where the openings are. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Actually, one of the one of the questions we got on Instagram was, are all investment banking opportunities in New York City? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, even I can answer that, right? The answer is no. And yeah. your location in the world is going to largely be linked to which group you're in. So, you know, most large sell-side firms, meaning, again, most large investment banks, have multiple offices, not only around the country, but also probably around the world. Yeah. So, you know, within the United States, right, the biggest banking hubs outside of New York City are Charlotte, where I live. (laughs) Uh, But you've got Chicago, you've got San Francisco, you've got Houston. And and now really post-COVID, you have Miami, which just Mm. totally exploded in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, And then outside the country, you know, most banks tend to have a presence in London and Tokyo and Hong Kong kind of at a bare minimum. Uh, But you've got other financial hubs like Sydney and Dubai. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to cover a lot of Canadian accounts. So I spent a lot of time in Montreal, which is like one of my favorite cities in the entire world. I need to visit. I've never been. I have to go. Uh, But you know, there's like Zurich and Madrid and Paris and Frankfurt. I mean, like, I mean, I could probably list like 25 different cities that you might be able to work in. But, yeah. but really, it's the proximity of other industries in that city that's yeah. likely to dictate the banking opportunities that dominate there. It, yeah, that's exactly true. So like if you're working in San Francisco, well, you're probably going to have the most opportunities in tech banking. Right. Or if you're in Houston, well, you're probably going to have the most opportunities in power and natural resources banking. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some things to consider. Although it is worth noting that each of these different groups have different lifestyles. <laughs> and we've also gotten a lot of requests you know, to get more into the lifestyle itself. 
Last week, we got a little bit into the nitty gritty of what a day in the life looks like, you know, talking about why the hours tend to be longer in the investment banking division than in the sales and trading division. So if you haven't listened to our episode three, which is um, it's called What Sets You Up for Success in Finance, go back and check it out. The part where we get into the day-to-day starts like 20 minutes in, but um, please listen to the whole episode. Hopefully it's helpful. Um, but we, I just want to say we are going to talk about this tons more going forward. Yeah. Um, you know, and we we got this question 10 different ways, but it was basically, yeah. hey, listen, I know the banks are saying they're trying to get better balance, but like, yeah. are they? What are the hours like? Are you working 100 hour work weeks like post COVID? Are we supposed to be back in the office? Can I work from home? We got mm-hmm. so many questions about that. But can you speak to it a little? I mean, yeah, from what I have seen a lot of and, and by the way, so we're currently talking um, spring 2023, mm-hmm. but what I have seen recently is that a lot of these firms are asking people to be in the office four days a week and then have one day a week, usually like a Friday, work mm-hmm. from home. Now, does that translate to fewer hours? I mean, not having the FaceTime um, at least one day a week must help. Sure. Although I actually think being in the office for a junior banker is really important because of the whole apprenticeship model, which is something we'll speak to a much later point. Right. But um, I also did see that just today, JP Morgan announced that it wants managing directors back in the office five days a week, mm. which means that, you know, analysts probably will have to be back five days a week too if their senior banker is there. What's tough is that you're not going to have 100 hour work weeks as the norm, but when a deal is live, you are going to be working more than nine to five and your weekends are potentially going to get blown up and maybe a holiday. You know, I remember one of my good friends from college was coming to visit me uh, and can hear some screaming in the background. Sorry, guys. Um, (laughs) But uh, she came to visit me one weekend and I was working until 3 a.m. on a Saturday. And so I didn't even get a chance to see her. Mm, And That must have been rough. This is such a convenient segue for me to say that if you are concerned about having a life of your own, meaning wanting most of your weekends and the majority of your weeknights to yourself, then maybe sales and trading is the better fit for you. Yes, this is true. (laughs) See what I did there? So on next episode, uh, we are going to take our basic example that we walked through here to illustrate what happens in the investment banking division and expand beyond that to see what happens downstream as we go through capital markets and into the sales and trading division as a result. Um, But Kristen, you did a great job with all this. And I am now mildly terrified to have to do all the explaining next time. You have set the bar quite high. Well, thank you. But no, I'm super excited to, I, I I think we've, we talked about this before. I still like don't really understand what you did have, you know, in sales and trading. So I'm super excited for next week. And, and I think uh, we're going to make it like a two-parter possibly, mm. um, because we're going to have to start in the capital markets division before we mm. get through to sales and trading and capital markets really straddles yeah. both divisions of, yeah. of investment banking and sales and trading. Yeah. Um, but no, thank you so much, Kristen. You, you really did a great job. Well, thank you. Well, thank you guys for listening. We so appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you next time. This is Jen Sarbach again. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening to the Wall Street Skinny. I just wanted to quickly dedicate this episode in loving memory of my friend and former colleague, Jennifer Moe, who uh, I found out passed away this week. Um, I was so lucky to have the opportunity to know her. and, um, And I love you and I miss you, Jen.